The ongoing coronavirus outbreak has raised international concern. What do physicians need to know to diagnose and treat the disease, and what information can they share with their patients? I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor, both of whom are infectious disease specialists. Dr. Rubin, let's start with some historical context. How does this outbreak relate to previous coronavirus outbreaks? There have been a number of human infections with coronaviruses for a long time, but for a very long time, the only virus that we really knew much about caused a mild disease, a mild upper respiratory tract infection. That was true until the early 2000s when SARS coronavirus appeared, a virus which caused a rather severe respiratory illness. Several years ago, a second coronavirus appeared in Saudi Arabia, the MERS coronavirus, which was transmitted from camels to people. That caused an even more severe disease, which carried a high mortality rate. SARS was eventually controlled and eliminated largely through quarantine, and perhaps as a seasonal virus, it simply disappeared. MERS remains present at low levels. However, aside from certain super-spreading events, it is not transmitted terribly efficiently. So this is our third coronavirus, and like the other coronaviruses, it appears to be primarily an animal virus which has been transmitted to people. This one, like the others, likely originated in bats, but may have been transmitted through an intermediate animal vector. Dr. Baden, at this point, what do we know about the transmission of this virus? As Dr. Rubin mentioned, coronaviruses likely circulate in animal reservoirs, with the bat being a well-described natural host. And through intermediate animal species can intermittently jump into human infection. When exactly this particular event originated is unclear, although it's suspected in December associated with wet market interactions where a lot of animals are present and human interactions with them. Over the last month, it has spread quite rapidly where the current estimates are over 30,000 infected persons globally, the majority of which are in China, suggesting ease in human-to-human spread once the virus was able to make the species jump which needed to occur, which is a much more complicated event. And currently, with the rapid speed of transmission, with what appears to be thousands of new cases being identified per day, it is quite concerning. However, what is difficult to assess in this situation are some of the control measures that have been put into place, which will take one or two cycles of transmission, a couple of weeks, to see the impact of those control measures, as well as the new diagnoses because we're able to diagnose more rapidly. The severity of illness is tricky with this rapid spread, and estimates are that 15% of patients may have severe illness of what we hear from public health authorities, which of course raises concern about how significant will the illness really be. So what's the spectrum of clinical presentation altogether? It has not been completely well described, but the primary spectrum appears to be a respiratory transmission, respiratory infection, therefore a pneumonic or pulmonary infection, and the more severe disease appears to be more of a viral pneumonia with bilateral lung infiltrate and obviously respiratory compromise, but that seems to be in a minority of patients. 
However, it does appear to be in a significant minority because 10 to 20% of patients, as I mentioned before, requiring significant support for respiratory difficulties is quite concerning. And the severity of illness appears to progress in about 1% to 2% the estimated mortality is, but that's hard to truly estimate at this point, given how rapidly changing this event is. So there are clearly a number of holes in our knowledge of this virus, which we're going to hope to fill in over the coming weeks. Dr. Rubin, for example, how much minimally symptomatic disease do you think we're missing? That's a good question, and I think we know very little about that. We've seen an increasing number of reports of people who have detectable viral RNA despite the fact that they don't have a flu-like illness. That suggests that the reservoir of disease might be quite large. And getting back to Dr. Baden's question about how much disease and how severe it is, understanding how bad the disease is and understanding its transmission is a question that we can only answer if we're aware of how many minimally symptomatic cases there are. And then looking at potential treatment, Dr. Baden, what sort of antiviral opportunities are there? So the treatment predominantly at this time is supportive care and preventing and managing complications. Direct antiviral therapy targeting this virus There are none that have been established. There are several which have been looked at and considered for the other coronaviruses that Dr. Rubin mentioned, and their ongoing studies with lopinavir, ritonavir, which is a drug used to treat HIV but has some in vitro activity, and there are studies looking at that agent for MERS, but it's not been established. Remdesivir is another agent which has in vitro activity and is also being looked at. And I think it's very important, as we learn from the Ebola outbreak and other outbreaks, the importance of doing high-quality studies rapidly to determine which of these or other agents are effective so that we can scale up quickly to benefit our patients. But we need to sort out which of these agents work, given the complexity of the illness that we're caring for. Because one can imagine in the current circumstance how many ill patients have to be managed and the need to care for them. And at the same time, we have to advance knowledge so we can figure out how to really control this epidemic. Dr. Rubin, in the absence of proven medications, how effective is quarantine, which seems to be the current strategy? It's an excellent question. Certainly for SARS and for MERS, quarantine was and remains our major tool for controlling infection. However, both of those illnesses had certain characteristics of transmission, which may have allowed us to limit their spread. Both of them tended to occur in symptomatic individuals, so we could easily identify individuals who needed to be quarantined. That may be less true for this infection, and if so, it might be very much more difficult to control simply through quarantine. It's likely that quarantine always slows the spread of disease, but can we block the spread of disease entirely? It's not clear. I would like to add, though, that quarantine measures have to be accompanied by treatment for patients. And we're discussing this at a time when we are hearing about deaths of physicians and other care providers in China where the disease is very common. As physicians, it's our obligation and privilege to care for very ill individuals, including those with infectious diseases. But I do want to cite the bravery of the people in China who are taking care of patients and putting themselves at risk. And part of, you know, building on what Dr. Rubin has said, part of the challenge is really understanding the transmission dynamics. And when are people shedding 
When are they contagious? When is the organism transmissible? How symptomatic or ill does a person need to be in terms of when they may spread the virus? And understanding that will be critical to figuring out strategies to prevent transmission. Because a challenge with quarantine or any infection control measures, we understand the transmission dynamics, and that has to be very well delineated. Given the speed of transmission of this organism, it makes me very concerned that it's easily transmissible in individuals who are minimally symptomatic. And that becomes a very important element to determine what interventions will decrease the transmission. And it's different than SARS, because SARS, even though this organism uses the same receptor, the ACE2 receptor, which is in the lower respiratory tract like SARS, SARS was not really transmissible until you were pretty sick. And that was an important element of the biology of SARS and the understanding of super spreaders that allowed control. It's not so clear that this organism has that same clinical phenotype, even though some of the biology is likely to be similar. I'd add that public health authorities have been put in a very difficult situation. They have to act now, and they have to act on limited information. And they're making the choices, in this case, how tight quarantine will be based on guesses. These are essentially experiments, and it's extremely important for us to understand what works and what doesn't going forward and to test whether or not these interventions are the best methods to control disease. And uh, quarantine may not be the right term that we should be using because it comes with a lot of baggage. It's infection control. All of us don't want to infect others and will do what's appropriate to minimize transmission. And as Dr. Rubin said, the infection control, the public health, the federal agencies are doing an incredible job to try and prevent further transmission. And I hope that what their recommendations are will continue to change as new information emerges, which is a sign that we understand the biology better and can make more insightful recommendations. But it's how do we prevent transmission, which all of us will participate in once we understand the dynamics. And hopefully data that can guide us will emerge soon so that we all can respond accordingly. Thank you, Dr. Baden. Thank you, Dr. Rubin.